Okay, well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at uh, Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by my partner, uh, Mr. Tom Moran, one of our new uh, new surety attorneys in our new Richmond office uh, in Virginia. Say hello, Tom. Thanks, Mike, and thanks to everyone who's joining us on the phone. I'm excited to be part of the firm, and I'm glad to be here on surety today. Okay, thanks. Uh, sorry, everybody, we got a little bit of a late start. As you know, Surety Today is offered only to uh, in-house claims professionals and is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. We really appreciate uh, your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. Uh, we also ask that you like or share our Surety Today post on LinkedIn and Twitter. As I mentioned, if you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording at multiple locations uh, on our Surety Today page on our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at iTunes, uh, Google Music, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just uh, search for Surety Today. And uh, on our microsite at suretytoday.net. If you have any suggestions for future topics or improvements, please let us know. We muted the line uh, during the presentation to avoid any background noise. We will unmute the line at the end, as always, for any questions. The title of our presentation today is Notice, Conditions Precedent, and Prejudice to the Surety under the A312-2010 Performance Bond. But before we uh, begin the presentation, I wanted to uh, take a moment to introduce uh, Tom Moran. Tom has been practicing surety law for over 13 years. He is licensed in uh, West Virginia, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. He has litigated matters in all state and federal courts where he is licensed, and he regularly appears in the bankruptcy courts in Virginia and West Virginia. Tom has extensive experience in all aspects of the surety law, including commercial bond matters, performance and payment bond disputes, takeovers, tenders, financing, indemnity actions, you name it. In addition to his surety experience, Tom has a broad-based legal experience in construction law, insurance defense, creditors' rights, and other business and corporate matters. Tom's a graduate of uh, Cornell University and the University of Richmond School of Law. Tom and I work together as uh, co-counsel on behalf of a surety on a large national bankruptcy that was pending in Richmond. And uh, we've worked on cases where we each had different sureties, but, you know, had the same principle. Tom's an excellent lawyer, and we are thrilled to have him and Rich Pledger and uh, Justin Thatch join our surety and fidelity law group. Now, the impetus uh, for today's presentation is a case that Tom currently has in Washington, D.C., where Tom is representing the surety against the performance bond claims of a general contractor uh, rising out of an A312-2010 uh, performance bond. Tom won in federal court at the trial level, and the case is now pending the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and Tom will be talking about that case uh, later in the presentation. So I'm going to start us off by discussing the law of conditions precedent and then spending some time walking through the AIA A312-2010 performance bond, you know, as a refresher. Uh, and Tom will then discuss uh, prejudice, impairment to the surety, the consequences for the obligee's failure to comply with conditions precedent, 
and then I'll briefly touch on uh, levels of prejudice and discharge, and Tom will conclude by exploring the line between the obligee's rights under the contract and the surety's rights under the bond. So uh, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, I'll first start off, as I said, with the law of conditions precedent. We start first with a simple concept, that a surety bond is a contract. Therefore, a bond as a contract must be interpreted in accordance with the established rules of contract construction. Further, under the law of suretyship, the surety's liability for damages is limited to the terms of the bond. Courts have long recognized that the liability of a surety should not be extended by implication beyond the terms of the bond. A concept arises under contract law known as the condition precedent. The condition precedent is defined as a fact other than a mere lapse of time, which unless excused, must exist or occur before a duty of immediate performance of a promise arises. So in other words, when a, when a condition precedent exists in a contract and it is party A's obligation to satisfy the condition, party A must perform that condition before party B has an obligation to perform under the contract. And there can be no breach of the contract by Party B until the condition precedent is either performed by Party A or the condition is excused. In terms of a surety bond, if, a, if an obligee must satisfy a condition precedent before the surety's obligation under the bond will arise, the surety has no obligation under that bond until that condition precedent is satisfied by the obligee. So whether a, a provision in a contract is a condition precedent depends not upon formal words or special phrases, but upon the intent of the parties to be deduced from the whole instrument. The question whether a stipulation is a contract constitutes a condition precedent is one of construction, dependent on the intent of the parties to be gathered from the words they have employed, and in case of ambiguity, any resort, any resort to other permissible aids of interpretation. In Gilbane Building Company versus Brisk Waterproofing, uh, the Maryland Court of Special Appeals, the court held that no special language is required to create a condition precedent. Words and phrases such as if, provided that, when, after, as soon as, and subject to have commonly been associated with creating express conditions. Examples of condition precedent language can be found in the AIA A312 uh, 2010 performance bond. For example, Section 3 provides, quote, if there is no owner default under, under the construction contract, the surety's obligation under this bond shall arise after, unquote. And then it goes on to note several conditions, such as the notice, meeting, and all that stuff. The use of the word if uh, before no owner default establishes the condition that the owner must not be in default for the surety to have liability under the bond. The use of the words, the surety's obligation under this bond shall arise after creates the condition that the terms noted must be satisfied before the surety has any liability under the bond. The vast majority of courts that have held, have held that uh, the Section 3 requirements of the A312 performance bond are conditions precedent, which the obligee must satisfy before the surety has any obligation under the bond. We've collected a, a listing of over a dozen cases holding that the various provisions of the A312 constitute condition precedent. And you can see those cases in the paper, which we'll post after the presentation uh, a little later this week. It should be noted that uh, at least one court has refused to recognize the notice provisions as a condition precedent 
in the A312 under the facts and the law of that case, and that's uh, International Fidelity uh, versus County of Rockland out of the Southern District of New York. But finally, while nearly all courts find that the various provisions of the A312 constitute condition precedent, it's important to keep in mind that conditions precedent can be weighed by the surety either expressly or by implication resulting from the surety's acts or conduct. So the surety must be careful in its dealings with the obligee not to waive those conditions precedent in the bond. So let's, uh, let's take a few minutes and walk through the, uh, the AIA A312 2010 bond. The authors of the treatise uh, Bruner and O'Connor on construction law have remarked that the A312 performance bond is one of the clearest, most definitive, and widely used type of traditional common law performance bond in private construction. The A A312 form was developed to define clearly the scope and extent of the surety's liability, the trigger of the surety's obligation to perform, the options available to the surety in satisfying its bond obligations, and the duration of the surety's obligations. So section one of the, of the A312 establishes the familiar commitment and joint several liability of the surety and the principal to perform the construction contract and incorporates the construction contract by reference into the bond and defines what the construction contract is. Section two makes clear that if the principal performs a construction contract, then the surety and the principal have no obligation under the bond. In other words, the principal must first be in default under the bonded contract before the surety's obligation arises under the bond. Section 3 of the A312 sets forth the notice and the other conditions that must be met by the obligee to initiate a claim under the bond against the surety. As noted above, uh, Section 3 begins by providing a quote, if there is no owner default under the construction contract, the surety's obligation under this bond shall arise after, unquote. So this wording, you know, clearly provides a condition precedent language and suggests that if there is an owner default, the surety shall have no obligation under the bond. Thus, determining whether the owner is in default is an important threshold issue. The A312 defines an owner default in Section 14.4 as essentially the owner's failure to pay the contractor as required under the contract or to perform and complete or comply with other material terms of the contract. In many instances, when the surety gets involved, it will be discovered that the owner has failed to timely make payment, failed to timely address change orders, claims, RFIs, or other issues that affected the principal's ability to timely pay uh, and timely perform. So the surety should examine whether the owner is in default as part of its investigation, of course. Only if there is no owner default, Section 3.1 requires the owner to provide notice to the contractor and the surety that the owner is considering declaring a contractor default. Such notice is required to indicate whether the owner is requesting a conference to discuss the contractor's performance. If the owner does not request a conference, the surety may do so. If the surety timely requests a conference, the owner is required to, to, uh, to attend. This provision is a change from the 1984 version of the A312, which required only that the owner request an attempt to arrange a conference and did not give the surety the right to request. In, uh, in Breath of Life, Christian Church versus Travelers Insurance Company out of uh, Tennessee, the Tennessee Court of Appeals characterized this conference requirement as being a mediation mechanism that seeks to avoid default. Just last month, I got a new case where the owner, um, you know, provided its intent, uh, notice of intent to declare default, but it did not request the meeting. So we, as the surety, requested the meeting, 
we got the owner and the principal into a room and ultimately we were able to work out a deal where they're going to continue to work with each other to address the issues on the job and so the surety may end up with with no loss there so we'll see how it plays out if the issues are not resolved in the conference section 3.2 requires the owner to declare the contractor in default terminate the construction contract and notify the surety the two the, the 2010 um, section 3.2 speeds up the claim process from the 1984 version of the A312 by eliminating the requirement that the owner wait at least 20 days after notice before declaring a contractor default. Finally, Section 3.3 requires the owner to agree to pay to the surety the balance of the, of the contract price in accordance with the terms of the construction contract. The bond defines balance of the contract price as Section 14.1. The 2012 uh, A310 uh, uh, added a new Section 4 that made a significant change from the A312 1984 version. The 2010 Section 4 provides that an owner's failure to comply with the notice requirement in Section 3.1, quote, shall not constitute a failure to comply with a condition precedent to the surety's obligations or release the surety from its obligations except to the extent the surety demonstrates actual prejudice. Under this provision, the surety will have the burden of showing actual prejudice due to the obligee's failure to provide proper notice, and if the surety does so, its obligation will be reduced to the extent of that prejudice, as opposed to being discharged entirely. Courts interpreting Section 4 have noted the clear language that limits Section 4 to just 3.1. Further, although the new Section 4 eliminates the failure to provide notice um, of, of intent to declare default and participate in a meeting without uh, showing prejudice, the limited nature of Section 4 should uh, actually strengthen the surety's argument that the other requirements of Section 3 are condition precedents and are not required to show prejudice. So um, when the owner has satisfied the conditions under Section 3, surety is required to promptly and at the surety's expense Take one of the actions identified in the A312 at Section 5. Those actions include the familiar um, uh, options of the surety, arranging for, for a contractor with the owner's consent to complete, uh, undertake to perform itself through an independent contractor, obtain bids or proposals from contractors acceptable to the owner and pay the excess cost, pay the owner the cost of completion or deny liability. If the surety does not proceed as provided in Section 5 with reasonable promptness, the owner can provide written notice to the surety demanding that the surety perform its obligations under the bond. If the surety is not proceeded after seven days from receipt of that notice, the surety will be deemed to be in default. If the surety is in default, the owner shall be entitled to enforce any remedy available to the owner. If the surety proceeds as provided in Section 5.4 and the owner refuses the payment or the surety has denied liability in whole or in part, then without further notice, the owner should be entitled to enforce any remedy available to the owner. If the surety elects to act under sections 5.1, 5.2, or 5.3, then the responsibilities of the surety to the owner shall not be greater than those of the contractor under the construction contract, and the responsibilities of the owner are not greater than those under the contract. Section 7 of the bond provides that subject to the commitment by the owner to pay the balance of the contract price, the surety is obligated without duplication for correcting the defective work, completing the work, additional legal, design, professional, and delay costs resulting from the contractor's default and resulting from actions or failure to act of the surety, 
and uh, liquidated damages, or if there aren't any liquidated damages, uh, then actual damages caused by delay, uh, performance by or non-performance by the contractor. If the surety elects to act under 5.1, 0.3, or 0.4, the surety's liability is limited to the penal amount of the bond. Thus, electing to take over under Section 5.2 of the A312 can expose the surety to liability in excess of the penal sum. Okay, I'll hand it, off, hand it over to Tom. Tom? Thanks, Mike. Um, I'm going to talk about the prejudice and impairment to the surety under this bond form uh, and consequences for the obligee's failure to comply with conditions precedent. An obligee who fails to comply with the conditions precedent set forth in the, in the A312-2010 bond risks, risks losing the benefit of the bond entirely. The notice provisions in a performance bond are, aren't mere procedural hurdles. Uh, they ensure that a surety whose principal is defaulted in its obligations can act swiftly to mitigate its potential losses that arise from the default. When the surety doesn't have a meaningful right to investigate the project and choose among the options that Mike laid out in Section 5, uh, either because the obligee was late giving notice or didn't give the proper type of notice, the bond can be discharged. While there, while there aren't many reported decisions that deal with the 2010 bond form yet, for the most part what we've seen is that courts have been willing to strictly apply the conditions precedent as they would to any other type of contract. One recently decided case that touched on that issue uh, is a case that I've, I've been working on called Western Surety Company versus U.S. Engineering Company. Uh, that, that arose in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. This case involved the South, Ameri South, excuse me, South African Embassy Project. The principal there was a mechanical subcontractor, which was terminated by the obligee after issues arose. Uh, that termination happened without notice to the surety. The obligee then proceeded to complete the work using its own personnel, and it also hired several other contractors to complete the uh, principal scope of work. Meanwhile, the principal uh, initiated arbitration against the obligee. While that arbitration was going on, the principal closed its doors. And about that time, the obligee realized it had rights on her performance bond. Um, not coincidentally, its project manager had quit abruptly in the middle of the project, so they had some administrative issues occurring. And at that point, they finally submitted a claim to the surety. That was about nine months after the termination, and it was sometime after the principal scope of work had been completed. And that was the first notice the surety had received that there were any problems at all on the project. The surety moved for summary judgment pretty quickly, uh, arguing that the obligee failed to comply with all the conditions precedent under sections 3.1, 3.2, and 3.3. Uh, in other words, the the obligee didn't give notice of intent to meet, didn't give notice of termination, and it didn't agree to commit the remaining contract funds to the surety. The obligee countered that it did do all these things eventually. Um, they said that the fact that it did that, it, it, it took them nine months after termination was irrelevant because the bond didn't give a time frame for when those conditions had to be met. They just needed to be met at some point. The key question to the court on summary judgment was whether the bond contained a provision requiring specific action within a certain amount of time. While the principle was correct that there wasn't an explicit provision in the bond requiring notice within a time certain, the court found that the right to cure and other options under Section 5 would be meaningless if the notice of termination could be given after the work had been supplemented. Um, 
On the issue of prejudice, the court found that prejudice wasn't a required showing under Section 3.2. Um, and, and that's because, as Mike said, Section 4 only requires a set showing of prejudice with respect to delayed notice under Section 3.1. But because there was a valid contractual provision that gave the surety an opportunity to cure the default, the denial of that right was a sufficient breach of the bond to affect a discharge. Um, <clears throat> the, the court in that case relied heavily on, 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 on Hunt Construction Group versus National Wrecking Corp. Um, that's a case from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, that case had similar facts, but it was evaluated under the A311 bond form. Now, that, the U.S. engineering case has been appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, so we may revisit that in a future surety today, depending on how it comes out on appeal. The next case I'd like to discuss is Granger Construction versus TJ LLC. That's a case from an appellate state court in New York, an appellate court. That arose from the construction of a hotel. The hotel was substantially completed and open for business before all the repair work was actually done. There was a problem with the fire alarm system that forced the hotel to close down. The owner made demand on the principal to repair the alarm, but the principal refused because it hadn't been timely paid. So the owner hired another contractor to fix the alarm issue, and in the course of doing that, it found other issues of defective work, and the owner then hired other contractors to fix the defective work. After those repairs were done, the owner then sent its notice of intent to declare default to the surety. Uh, the contractor filed suit against the owner for failure to pay, and the owner filed a third-party claim against the surety to make a claim on the performance bond. The surety moved for summary judgment, asserted that the owner had violated several conditions precedent in the bond, namely failed to provide the notice required by the bond, failed to allow the surety to elect options, failed to give additional notice before filing suit, and basically just ignored all the conditions. And the trial court granted summary judgment for the surety on appeal, uh, the court affirmed, affirmed that, finding that the language of the bond provided clear, unambiguous conditions precedent, and that the surety's obligation did not arise until those conditions precedent were satisfied. But because the conditions precedent were not satisfied, the court affirmed the summary judgment and the surety was out of the case. So the, the takeaway there, um, look at the terms of the bond, be familiar with those at the outset, and see if you have a condition precedent defense. Uh, but be careful because those conditions precedent can be waived or excused, so the surety's conduct might eventually come into play. Now I'll throw it back over to Mike, who's going to talk about levels of prejudice. Right. Thanks, Tom. So this is going to be a brief segment. I just want to get this concept out there uh, for everybody to be aware of. You know, historically, sureties were favored under the law, and any change or modification or failure to follow the terms of the bond resulted in a discharge of the surety, regardless of whether there was any actual prejudice or harm to the surety. Over time, courts began to note the distinction between a personal surety and a compensated surety. The law in many jurisdictions began to change uh, with respect to compensated sureties, and courts began to require a showing of prejudice to the surety before there could be a discharge, and some courts even limited the discharge just to the amount of the discharge. And there's a number of cases that, that have held that over the years, and I think that even became uh, the position of the restatement that there had to be a showing of prejudice. Now, to a, a great extent, I think 
you know, this, the, the extent the A312 bond has brought into the mix the, uh, the conditions precedent and the contract law, I think you, you've got a situation now where you can use these condition precedents in the bond to get around this requirement of prejudice because it's, it's contract law. It's not surety ship. It's not, you know, a, a, a compensated insurance company, quote unquote, getting away, uh, you know, for free. It's basic contract law. You've got a condition precedent. If it's not met, you don't have obligations under the contract. And so I think, you know, we'll see more and more cases coming out. And we cited to a bunch that are, that are for the 2010 and, 2000, and the 1984 versions where, uh, where the fact that it's a condition precedent is going to be the determining factor and prejudice is not going to be part of the equation. But, you know, you still got to be aware of the fact that uh, there are many jurisdictions that, that are looking to see if there's prejudice and, and may still engraft that. Uh, prejudice requirement onto um, onto the A312 uh, condition precedent language, uh, notwithstanding contract law. Uh, okay, Tom, I'll throw that back over to you. Thanks. Um, I'm, now I'm going to talk about the line between the obligee's rights under the contract and the surety's rights under the bond. Um, sometimes the surety's performance rights under the A312 2010 bond will come into conflict with the obligee's interest in completing the work pursuant to its right to supplement either under the contract or its right to keep the project lien-free. Usually under the subcontract, the obligee will be entitled to supplement the principal's work once it declares the default after an applicable notice period. Uh, and then the obligee will have the right to do the work itself or hire a supplementing contractor uh, to do that if the principal fails to cure. And uh, the obligee also typically has the right under the project to pay off any liens that may be asserted uh, also after notice. That tension uh, was resolved in favor of the surety in a case called um, United States XREL Agate Steel versus James Corp. Uh, that's a case out of the US uh, United States Court for the District of Nevada. Um, that project was the involved the construction of a rescue station at, at Creech Air Force Base in Nevada. The general contractor subcontracted with American Steel Corp for steel fabrication. Uh, which provided its bonds using the A312-2010 language. The general contractor in American Steel saw their relationship break down. Each party blamed the other for delays and problems on the project. Uh, the general contractor wrote a letter to American Steel advising that its steel erection plan was late and that it would be responsible for any delays. That first letter said it was copied to the surety, uh, but the surety didn't have a record of receiving it. Now, there were some additional communications that were directed only to American Steel. At the conclusion of those, a new steel contractor was hired by the general contractor to finish the work. Then, about a month after that completion, the general contractor finally submitted a written notice of claim under the performance bond, agreeing to offset the remaining contract funds. And the court, um, on summary judgment, decided that that was not enough. It recognized that the surety's obligations didn't arise until after the general contractor followed the requirements of Section 3.2, that is, declaring a contractor default, terminating the contract, and notifying the surety. There was no evidence, according to the court, that the general contractor terminated the contract or notified the surety of the termination so that the surety could exercise its options under Section 5 of the performance bond. 
It also observed that the notices provided by the general contractor didn't terminate, but only threatened supplementation, which was provided for in a different section of the subcontract. The general contractor did not provide a seven-day notice of termination as a subcontract required or any other notice of the surety was expected to commence performance under the bond. Um, the general contractor argued that the surety was eventually informed of the default, so it was not prejudiced. Uh, it, it also pointed to the concept that the bond of the compensated surety is to be liberally interpreted in the interest of the beneficiaries. Um, so the failure to comply with the procedural notice requirements was just a technical violation that shouldn't relieve the surety of its obligations. But the court said that there was no ambiguity that could be liberally construed. Under the plain language of the bond, compliance with Section 3.2 was a condition precedent to the surety's obligations, and there was no need to show prejudice because Section 4's prejudice requirement only applied to Section 3.1 of the bond and not to Sections 3.2 and 3.3. Uh, the lack of notice of termination wasn't a technical violation but a material breach which excused the surety's performance. Um, Another case that I'll touch on briefly is Commercial Casualty Insurance Company of Georgia versus Maritime Trade um, Center Builders, and that's out of uh, the Georgia Appellate Court. Uh, there, the court found in favor of the obligee when it relied on subcontract provisions that conflicted with the bond form. Under the subcontract there, if the subcontractor failed to perform the obligee uh, could supplement or replace the contractor upon 48 hours written notice. There was also an indemnity provision for losses arising from the subcontractor's breach. The court held that there was no discharge, even though there wasn't strict compliance with the general contractor's requirement to provide notice of termination under the bond, and the court reasoned that was so because the bond itself contains a detailed notice provision in the event of default, but does not address a contingency of the contractor supplementing the subcontractor's work before it defaults. So a line was drawn there between the condition allowing the obligee to supplement the work and the declaration of default under the bond. The obligee completed the principal scope of work itself and charged the cost to the surety just by declaring a breach of the subcontract. Now, it's worth noting that that case was decided using a previous bond form, uh, and also the surety appeared to take little action in response to the notices that it received, um, and it's possible that the court may have decided that that was a tacit approval of the obligee's ultimate choice to supplement the work, even though it didn't receive specific notice of that choice. Um, a surety also needs to be wary of the obligee's right to ensure a lien-free project under the subcontract and deduct the cost of doing so from the remaining contract funds. That was the main issue in a case called Whining-Turner Contracting uh, versus the Guarantee Company in North America. Um, that's a case out of an appellate court in, in Colorado. It's a very recent case, just decided about three or four months ago, and that involved the A312 bond form. The bonded subcontractor was engaged to construct the anchor system of a parking garage in a project to build an office building. The subcontractor fell behind schedule almost immediately and stopped paying the subs. Uh, it told Whiting Turner to take responsibility for the shotcrete portion of the contract, in other words, spray concrete, and Whiting Turner was to work directly with the sub-subs. Uh, Whiting Turner declared the subcontractor in default and issued a 3.1 notice, and that meeting took place with the surety's involvement. 
Um, and at that point, Whiting Turner and the subcontractor agreed to delete the shotcrete work from the subcontracts. Two days later, the subcontractor said that because Whiting Turner had declared it in default and stopped paying, it would demobilize. Whiting Turner asked the surety in writing how it should proceed, and the opinion states that the surety didn't respond. Uh, Whiting Turner then terminated and made demand again, and again, the opinion states that the surety didn't respond to that notice. Um, Whiting Turner then wrote yet again, including a calculation of the balance of the contract price. Now, the balance of the contract price is a defined term under Section 14.1 of the bond, and it's defined as the total amount payable by the owner to the contractor under the construction contract after all proper adjustments have been made. So Whiting Turner deducted payments to those five sub-subcontractors who had recorded or threatened liens against the project and the price of that shotcrete work. Now, that, the, the payments of the sub-subcontractors were made after the termination was declared. Uh, but that didn't, and, and the, the surety complained about that, saying that at a fit, when the termination occurred, that the balance of the contract price was fixed at that point in time, and that the, the, that the obligee couldn't then make payments, and to the extent that it did, it prejudiced itself. The court disagreed. Um, it found that Whiting-Turner satisfied the condition precedent, uh, and that was because the subcontract gave Whiting-Turner the right to take all actions necessary to keep the project free and clear of liens, and that included the amounts paid to subcontractors after the termination. Um, <clears throat> so there are two takeaways from Whiting-Turner case. The first is that the balance of the contract price isn't necessarily immutable at the time termination is declared. Uh, the obligee can satisfy the condition precedent under Section 3.3, even when the balance goes into negative numbers after post-termination deductions, as long as the payments are authorized under the bonded contract. The second is that a surety needs to be careful in relying on the need for strict compliance with conditions precedent when it's receiving repeated notice from the obligee that there are serious problems with the principal's performance. Uh, I see we're getting low on time, so I'll, I'll just make a quick mention of the International Fidelity case, International Fidelity versus Caribe Moriarty. That's from the Southern District of Florida. Um, that case, in that case, there were some discussions between the surety and the obligee before termination. Um, However, and there was in fact a laundry list of various communications, but the court held that there were, there were that, that those communications happened so quickly before the termination that they were basically no notice at all, and, and the surety didn't have a fair opportunity to investigate uh, and select one of its rights under Section 5 of the bond. And uh, that, that's discussed more in depth in the paper, and with that, I will um, turn it back over to Mike. All right, thanks, Tom. Uh, so before we open up the line, the next uh, surety today will be Monday, August 12th at 1230. Uh, so let me uh, unmute the lines here. The conference is now in talk mode. Okay, so are there any questions today? Um, yes, I'd, I'd like to know, um, well, first of all, uh, with the, new, the newest form, I think the um, condition precedent for 3.1 is gone, and that basically leaves uh, the other two parts, 3.2 and 3.3. Uh, .3. Um, uh, 
how uh, has the um, new form um, fared as to 3.2 and 3.3 cases, or has there been any uh, case law yet uh, regarding um, performance bond A312 on that? When you're saying the new form, are you talking about the ones that just came out last year, or are you talking about the 10, 2010? I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the 10. I don't expect that yeah. it's come out for one last year. Yeah, yeah. We talked about we talked about the fact that the the 2010 form added that new section four, which does uh, basically say you've got to show act, actual prejudice uh, in order to in order to uh, claim um, 3.1 violation. But the the courts that have interpreted the 2010 have said that 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 section, uh, um, section four, is limited to just 3.1, and that the other 3.2, 3.3, that those conditions precedent must be satisfied. So the cases that are out there, and as Tom noted, right. there's not a whole lot, but there's a there's quite a handful uh, are saying that 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 those those 3.2, 3.3, those are still conditions precedent. They still must be satisfied, and will will create a discharge for the surety if they're not satisfied, and. Uh, yeah, so that's yeah, that's uh, that's where that's where we are with the with the ten. Now the the latest form that came out last year, I don't think they made any real changes to the to the uh, performance bonds. Right, I I I have uh, two cases, uh, one on the winning side and one on the losing side, uh, with the 2008 form. Fortunately, I took no loss on the one that my uh, my principal lost. Um, that's the Neary case in in Connecticut, and I. I won the ward. I was the uh, adjuster on the uh, Hodes Water Street um, case, also in Connecticut. So uh, I have a lot of experience with that, and it's a it's a very interesting thing because um, the apologie will go through all kinds of um, hoops and uh, and gymnastics to try and get uh, get out of the uh, condition precedent. And one thing that I heard was that. Um, uh, for not for not giving the contract balance, um, they say that no contract balance was due, um, and therefore um, they didn't have to give give it. And uh, fortunately, the courts in Connecticut have um, said have said that uh, well, you still have to give basically an accounting, even even if uh, there's no money due uh, for that. And also, um, they tried to use the warranty to say that uh, um, they they could even at the at the court hearing uh, satisfy the uh, satisfy the um, requirements um, after the fact. Uh, have you run into any any interesting uh, attempts by by uh, obligee to try and get out of things that we should be aware of? Well, I haven't. This is this is Mike Stover. I haven't run into anything as creative as what you just mentioned. That sounds pretty. Uh, well, desperate, <laughs> Tom. What I know, you've got your current case. What, what else have you run into? Um, I, I do have one case right now uh, that, that's pending in West Virginia, where um, the the uh, there, there's no question that the that the notice provisions weren't complied with. Um, and it's this is also under the three a three twelve twenty ten bond form. Uh, but the obligee is relying on the fact that it, it met with the principal um, and actually re, this, this was after the, uh, 
it was actually a joint obligee situation. So uh, the, 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 the general contractor terminated the, the contractor and then the principal was actually a subcontractor. They entered in, but they, they still had obligee rights under the dual obligee provision. So what they did was they entered into a memorandum of understanding where the subcontractor would step into the shoes of the contractor and the the obligee is actually relying on that and, and and it did give notice to the surety that that was going on and its its argument is that the surety by assenting to that has basically elected one of its options under section mm -hmm. 5 which is to let which is to let the uh, the principal complete the project um that that case that. is ongoing, uh, and we'll see how that shakes out. At this point, the principal is kind of taking up the banner and, and is litigating the case, but we'll see if that issue actually comes to a head as the case progresses. Yeah, that that's yeah. interesting. That the and that and that brings up the point we raised earlier in in the presentation was that you got to be careful as the surety with what you're doing in terms of your investigation and what what kind of uh, you know agreements are being entered into. Because you can you can be charged with having waived the condition precedent, or or excused it. Right, and even if you um, can't get the condition precedent, which would be a summary judgment motion, uh, it, uh, you can also um, prove prejudice not only uh, regarding the the um, article uh, the um, section threes, but also the surety options clause as well and if you can right. prove prejudice right. you can still prevail but of course you're going to have to go to trial on that because it's a very rare if non-existent uh case to where you're going to get summary judgment on something like that right right that's that's prejudice in the right the surety's rights to take to elect its options to perform and and essentially the surety's right to mitigate damages is is what those arguments are and yeah that you're right there are some courts that really Hold the feet to the fire on how far you got to go to prove that prejudice. Yeah, uh, after almost 30 years in the in the industry, I had gone blissfully uh, without without a case where cardinal change was a major issue in the in the contract, and I had two in 2018. So, uh, lots lots of interesting things can come up. All right. Well, do we have any other questions? I guess not. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I guess uh, I guess not. Thanks everybody for for calling in. Really appreciate it. And everybody, take care. We'll talk to you next month. Bye bye. Thank you. Nice presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank bye -bye. you. Bye bye. Thank you.